Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. My guest today is Eliza Schatzman, who, after her own bad experience with a federal clerkship, founded the Legal Accountability Project, which focuses on helping law clerks have positive experiences, and it supports those who do not. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I just found out as part of my research for the show that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act does not apply to federal clerkships. Can you tell our audience briefly about the Judiciary Accountability Act and what the status of it is? Absolutely. So the Judiciary Accountability Act, that's H.R. 4827 in the House and S.2553 in the Senate, this is enormously important legislation that would, among other things, extend Title VII protections to federal judiciary employees, including law clerks and federal public defenders, enabling them to sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives, careers, and future earning potential. It would also put the judiciary in line with the other two branches of the federal government. As of 1995, pursuant to the Congressional Accountability Act and the Executive and Presidential Office Accountability Act, Title VII protects executive branch employees and congressional staffers. So the JA would extend Title VII protections, but it would do a couple other important things too. It would amend Title 28 of the US Code um, to define judicial misconduct to include discrimination and retaliation. It would standardize employee dispute resolution or EDR plans among all the circuits. It would specify that if a judge retires, resigns or dies, the investigation into their misconduct won't cease. And it would create a confidential reporting system for law clerks who are not ready to formally report but want to talk about their experience. And the third aspect is that it would impose data collection requirements on the federal judiciary. It would require them to conduct a workplace culture assessment, which they've been notoriously unwilling to do. And it would require them to report the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints and the lack of diversity in clerkship and federal public defender hiring. When you started your clerkship, were you aware that Title VII didn't cover your employment? I was not. And I served as a D.C. Superior Court clerk, which is an Article I courthouse, and they have some kind of unique restrictions. But I was not. I became engaged on this issue based on my personal experience, and that's kind of how I learn more about the lack of Title VII protections, and then eventually the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA. Have you found that a lot of lawyers with uh, more experience than what you've had so far, they were unaware of it as well? That's correct, yes. And there are sitting judges who I've spoken with recently um, who were not aware that they were exempt from Title VII. So yes, it's kind of an under-discussed issue, but an enormously important one. So what's going on at the Judiciary Accountability Act? Where is it now? So there was a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing in March of 2022. I submitted a statement for the record, written testimony for that. Um, Right now, the JAA has about 25 co-sponsors in the House. And then the Senate bill has about six co-sponsors. I'm hopeful there'll be a hearing in the coming months, um, but that's definitely not confirmed. You know, this is an issue that just needs sustained attention. I know that legislators are very busy, but this is really something that needs to be passed this year. Judiciary employees can't wait another year for such urgently needed reforms. And honestly, it's received bipartisan support in the House and interest in the Senate. I'm speaking with everyone from the most progressive congressional offices to the most conservative, and they are definitely interested in some form of increased judicial accountability. 
and workplace protections for judiciary employees because it's really a bipartisan issue. I mean, Democratic and Republican judicial appointees harass their clerks and both progressive and conservative clerks face mistreatment from the most uh, powerful members of our profession with really no way to seek redress. Do you have a sense of whether this has any critics that are, you know, lobbying or speaking out? So its major critics are judiciary leadership, the Judicial Conference of the United States, the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts. And I think it's important to understand that while judiciary leadership opposes the JA, individual judges don't always. I speak with federal judges often who support extending Title VII protections to themselves, who support increased judicial accountability, increased workplace protections. So the critics are a small but powerful lobby. There are also a couple nonprofits and advocacy orgs who oppose it. But, um, you know... Judiciary leadership has notoriously refused to be regulated. Back in 1995, when the Congressional Accountability Act was passed, they opposed extending Title VII protections to themselves. I think that's an enormous red flag. Title VII and other workplace protections need to protect the most vulnerable members of our profession, our newest and youngest attorneys, who face enormous power disparities when it comes to speaking out against their life-tenured supervisors. Tell me about your own experiences and how you got started um, on this path. Sure. So after I graduated from WashU Law in 2019, I clerked in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. I chose the clerkship because I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I knew that D.C. AUSAs appeared before D.C. Superior Court judges. Unfortunately, beginning just weeks into the clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me, discriminate against me based on my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me I made him uncomfortable and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so very big day in my life, he called me into his office, got in my face and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And I was just devastated. I mean, I cried myself to sleep at night. I wanted to be reassigned to a different clerkship, to a different judge, but my workplace did not have an employee dispute resolution plan in place that might have enabled me to be reassigned. We eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. The judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. So I reached out to DC Court's HR and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges and that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And then they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? So it took me about a year to get back on my feet after that, but I eventually secured my dream job in the DC US Attorney's Office and moved back to DC. I was about two weeks into training when I received some pretty devastating news. My supervisors told me the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. A Couple days later, an interview that had been extended by the USIO for a different job with the office was also revoked based on that same negative reference. I was two years into my legal career, and the judge seemed to have just enormous power to destroy my reputation and ruin my career. So that's when I filed a judicial complaint with the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. That's the regulatory body for Article 1 DC Courts judges. 
And then I participated in the summer and fall of 2021 into the investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through the investigation when I found out that he was already on leave pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he'd filed the negative reference. But the USAO wasn't alerted of that. Do you mind telling our audience why you cannot name this judge? Absolutely. So um, I had excellent attorneys representing me privately, and I was very fortunate. Many law clerks do not. I engaged in private settlement negotiations, totally separate from the judiciary between my attorneys and the former judges. And I have signed a settlement agreement, agreeing not to publicly identify him by name. And your former judge, he hired his own counsel for that, right? Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a bit, how was it finding an attorney to represent you in that? Because I think the profession has a very big piece of not wanting to offend a judge. Yes, this is enormously important, so I appreciate the question. It was very challenging. And one of the things I'd like to do long-term with a nonprofit I've launched is create an employment attorney database to connect employment attorneys with mistreated clerks who can help. So I found my attorneys. I reached out to a couple uh, law professors and other folks in the movement to protect law clerks from harassment who are very prominent. Uh, They provided me with lists of their contacts and I started calling through using their names until I found someone who would agree to represent me. But I definitely encountered attorneys who were not willing to go up against a judge in the jurisdiction where they represent paying clients. Because like you said, they didn't want to offend a judge. It was enormously challenging. How many calls approximately do you think it took before you found someone to take your case? Oh gosh, probably eight, I would say. And I I had excellent attorneys. I'm very grateful to them. But the thing is, I mean, this is a pretty niche area of legal action and law clerks can't sue under Title VII. So it makes it the claims are challenging and unique. I was very grateful and they did they did a great job. Generally and obviously it depends would be the answer. But can you give me a sense if you are a clerk and your judge has done something that you um, are not okay with and you approach the judge? How do those conversations usually go? Or is that something that's just not done? Um, It's either something that's not done or it ends with you're fired, I would say. There is an enormous power disparity between fresh out of law school clerks, young attorneys, and life-tenured Senate-confirmed judges that makes it enormously difficult to speak out even in the face of outrageous mistreatment. So I think law clerks rarely speak out at all, let alone file any sort of formal complaint. Do you think, are there some judges that if they're doing something that bothers a clerk, they would want to know about it? Definitely, yes. I mean, I I speak with judges. I speak with judiciary officials who believe that people can change, that judges can change, and that they do change their behavior. So I think it's important for clerks to have those conversations, absolutely. But it's also important for judges to have those tough conversations with their judiciary colleagues. If you are a judge and you see your colleague mistreating litigants, law clerks, courthouse employees, anyone, it's important to pull them aside and have that tough conversation. I mean, there are some jurisdictions that have bar rules about reporting on a judiciary colleague's misconduct or health issues, but those are just notoriously under-enforced as are judicial codes of conduct. So it's important to have judges speaking to their colleagues about these issues as well. I think it's an all hands on deck issue. And do you have a sense, I mean, it does seem like it would go over better if it was judge to judge as opposed to clerk to judge. 
Are there some things you have seen that have worked with bad behavior from a judge and getting them to change? I'm aware of instances where judges have pulled their colleagues aside and then there are options for why don't you take leave and do anger management training? Why don't you go to some other kind of training? I'm very skeptical. I don't think that is the most effective way to handle these issues. I think it's important for judges to have those conversations. But, you know, the issue is there is such an enormous power disparity and just so much power. I think it, I'm concerned that power corrupts and that by the time you are a judge harassing your clerks, I'm not totally sure you can change. Do you also see situations where someone is a difficult judge, so he or she just gets kind of put in a corner somewhere and they don't get great cases or anything that they can be counted on, really. I don't know what that would mean for clerkships, but do you see like passive aggressive <laughs> behaviors? Like we're not going to confront the judge and get them to change, but we're not going to give them interesting cases. Unfortunately, I never see that. And it's a good point because that is something that chief judges are empowered to do. They are empowered to reassign cases. And I think they should do that more. They are able to say to judges, we will take away your cases. Perhaps they could even threaten to do something with their power to hire clerks. I think those things would make a difference. Unfortunately, they don't. What could they do with their power to hire clerks? Because they have extreme power in that area, right? They do. They do. This is an issue where I'm advocating for change. Mm. I really think there should be more oversight by chief judges in individual courthouses over judges' day-to-day -day dealings with clerks. There is none right now, but it's interesting because when I talk to judges and I say, where do you think a law clerk should go if they're facing mistreatment? The most common answer I hear is go to the chief judge, which makes me think chief judges should really be thinking through these issues more, how they can support and protect clerks. And Look, I know that within a courthouse, they do much more than administer the law clerk program, but these are the new members of our profession, the young attorneys, perhaps the next generation of judges, and the idea that we're just letting them be mistreated and driven from the profession is so enormously troubling. Do you think what might change them is that risk of, if a story comes out, being embarrassed by it? I do, actually. I'm not opposed to the concept of naming and shaming judges. I mean, historically, law clerks are unwilling to file complaints at all. So the idea of speaking out publicly against a supervisor or former supervisor is scary. But I think it might work. I think it's one of the things we should try. You know, I think we need statutory changes and rules changes. And I very much think that the threat of punishment is what's going to change some of these misbehaving judges and keep the ones who don't always do the right thing in line. That's just my personal view, but I just really think that judges need more rules. And I think the judiciary needs a commitment to enforcing the existing rules as well, which they do not. When you were going through your own trauma with this and you talked to more senior lawyers, uh, or maybe even people that were around the same um, experience level as you, how often did you hear, is this really something you want to pursue? Often. That is a great question. Often and disproportionately by female attorneys. Um, it was women who told me, aren't you worried that speaking out will tarnish your reputation? It was women who discouraged me from reporting. It was female investigators who said to me, you must have done something wrong because the judge hired you in the first place. And it was women who discouraged me right up until my statement became public 
from speaking out. Did you also feel like you didn't have a choice because the judge um, terminated you from the position? You mean a choice about speaking out? Yeah, because I, I was curious, too, if you get terminated from a clerkship. I mean, how do you address that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt like I had many fewer options. So I lost my job and then I found a new one. And then after that job offer was revoked, that's when I engaged in the judicial complaint process. I definitely had few options legally and few options in my life, definitely. By the time I was deciding that I wanted to speak publicly, um, my reputation had been pretty much destroyed. So it's an interesting way to look at it that perhaps I didn't have too much to lose. And people have definitely said to me, because for a while after I began speaking publicly, I still very much wanted to be an AUSA in the DC US Attorney's Office. And it became clear and people said to me, you probably could not be speaking out in this way if you were a federal employee. So it's interesting to think through those dynamics. I mean, I consider myself as law adjacent at this point. I'm still maintaining a bar license, but I've stepped back from the formal practice of law. I think that gives me more freedom to speak out for myself and for other folks who reach out to me privately, but who will never speak publicly. So I hope to give them a voice as well. When you decided, I am going to speak publicly, how did you prepare yourself for that? Yeah, so I was going through the judicial complaint process in beginning in July of 2021. That's also when I became aware of the Judiciary Accountability Act and when I read uh, Olivia Warren's short law review piece in the Harvard Law Review about her experience. So my initial plan was for my first public statement to be a law journal article with the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law detailing my experience and advocating for an amendment to the JAA to cover the DC courts, which is where I clerked. They are currently not covered by the pending legislation. So I, during that time period, connected with a bunch of House and Senate offices involved in JAA drafting, shared my story, advocated for an amendment to cover the DC courts. When this hearing came up, my law journal article was in like semifinal stages in March of 2022, and I had the opportunity to speak publicly sooner, so I decided to take that opportunity. My statement for the record went through several iterations, just going through it with my attorneys. I was at that point very confident this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to speak out. Uh, the judge was no longer on the bench. We'd already signed the settlement agreement. So, yeah, I... I did not know what the public response would be like. It's been enormously positive, And I know that previous clerks who've spoken out have not enjoyed such strong public support. So I appreciate the law clerks who came before me and paved the way for me. How did you prepare yourself mentally? And were there times before you testify that you had doubts? Never had doubts. Um, and it was a statement for the record. It was written testimony. So it wasn't as if I was going to testify publicly. Mm -hmm. I was very sure this was what I wanted to do. You know, I did not receive redress through the formal legal system, through the judicial complaint process um, and limited redress through our private settlement agreement. So this was something that I felt would be empowering for myself to speak out, to share what happened to me, um, set the record straight to the extent, I mean, the D.C. Commission has made limited public statements, but I think to the extent that they have, they've been misleading about the scope of the investigation. So I wanted to talk about that as well. Went through several iterations as to what I was going to share publicly. And I've you know, spoken a lot since then and shared more uh, details that I wasn't sure I should share initially. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about what federal judges can do to help 
if they want to help clerks who are having a bad experience. And hopefully many of them do. (laughs) So we'll be right back. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journalist Asked and Answered, my guest is Elisa Schatzman, who, after her own bad experience with a federal clerkship, founded the Legal Accountability Project. It focuses on helping law clerks have positive experiences, and it supports those who do not have a positive experience. So, Elisa, what can federal judges do if they want to be allies for clerks? So there are a couple things judges can do. First, it's creating a positive work environment in your chambers. Um, A judicial chambers is extremely isolated. It's two or four law clerks, perhaps a judicial assistant and a judge working long hours and stressful circumstances behind locked doors. And as we mentioned earlier, there's really no oversight by chief judges over judges' day-to-day dealings with their clerks. So the first step is to create a positive environment in your workspace where law clerks feel that they can come to you if there are challenges, where you are creating a culture of reporting. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing, I mean, judges should be having, as we mentioned before, difficult conversations with their judiciary colleagues. If you see something wrong, say something to the judge, also say something to your chief judge. I mean, those are challenging conversations, but if we're talking about allyship, it's really about believing and affirming clerks. So those are the things that judges can do. And, you know, privately judges have been very supportive as I'm speaking with them about the work that I'm doing and the nonprofit I've founded. Yeah. These examples you just mentioned, have you seen or heard um, any judges actually doing some of those things? Oh, definitely. Yes. I've had several judges reach out to me privately to talk about the specific like workplace policies they've laid out in their chambers to ensure that law clerks know their rights, know where they can go to report. So absolutely, there are definitely judges who are doing the right thing, who are engaged on these issues. But it's really ensuring that every judge and every courthouse at, at the bare minimum follows the existing rules. What we see is that there are employee dispute resolution or EDR plans in place. That's the internal courthouse dispute resolution process where a law clerk can file a complaint if she's or he is being mistreated and seek reassignment to a different judge. The issue with those plans and other workplace policies is they are not standardized. So there are many courthouses where the rules are not being followed. I talk to judges who say I've been on the bench for a decade and I've never attended EDR training. That's a red flag that the rules are just not being enforced. Are you saying that the training is not uh, mandatory? I guess you could also That's say, correct. what does mandatory, oh, it's not, because I was going to say on the other hand, what does mandatory mean for the federal bench? That's correct. So it's not mandatory and every courthouse is empowered to create and administer its own EDR plan, which, I mean, the level of decentralization, I think is just troubling. I think it, everything should be totally centralized. There should be one uniform EDR plan. It's the model EDR plan. 
every courthouse and every circuit should implement it and administer it uniformly. Um, I don't think there's any need for this kind of decentralized implementation of the EDR plans, because what we see is in some courthouses, they're just not being followed. So it should be mandatory. Judges should sign in for the training and they should stay there. Same for the clerks. They should receive training on the EDR plan and other workplace policies. Has anyone ever looked into who actually does attend the EDR training? There are sometimes internal surveys of these circuits, and to the extent they've been leaked or reported on, we can see that judges are not necessarily attending the EDR training. But like we said, it's not mandatory. It's strongly encouraged. I think it should be mandatory. That is the bare minimum. Other workplaces do workplace training, and it is mandatory. I just am concerned that judges, by not making the EDR plan mandatory, by not passing the JA and extending Title VII protections, we are sending the message that judges are above the laws they enforce. They are above the anti-discrimination laws they enforce, and that is wrong. I was curious, is it fairly common for courts to have one judge who's seen as someone the clerks can go to for help? Um, definitely, I would say that. Yes, there are always a couple judges who are known as the good ones. People can seek out for assistance, and unfortunately, there are also some who are known as the bad judges. We talked about what federal judges could do to be allies for their clerks. What could law schools be doing better? Yes. So law schools right now, I think, are part of the problem, but they can and should be part of the solution. So I should probably back up and explain kind of the process by which folks obtain clerkships right now. Whether you're a state or a federal aspiring clerk, there is really no way right now for you to know who the good judges are to apply to and who the misbehaving judges are to avoid. There is no centralized information sharing system. Right now, it's a series of whisper networks whereby the onus is on former and current clerks to speak with current law students and give them the full scoop on misbehaving judges. What we see is that law clerks are unwilling to provide this information through their law schools. We see that law schools are not or rarely conduct post-clerkship surveys. Sometimes that information is centralized in an internal database. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the law schools warn their students. Sometimes they do not. I've been told by clerkship directors our policy is not to warn students about misbehaving judges. That's really troubling. And what I see in addition to these whisper networks where the information is not being shared, there's also a problematic silo effect whereby some law schools have information about some misbehaving judges. They may or may not warn students, but even if they are warning their own students, that does nothing for the hundreds and thousands of other students who might unwittingly walk into a hostile work environment because they don't have access to the information. And what we need to be saying to all these law schools and clerkships directors is you need to prioritize a positive clerkship experience over prestige of the clerkship. That means conducting a post-clerkship survey. That means maintaining this information in a centralized database, warning your students, helping them if they are reporting a negative experience to you. Law schools are not doing these things. They are enormously incentivized to get as many students to clerk as possible and disincentivized to prioritize a positive experience over prestige of the clerkship and my nonprofit seeking to combat some of these issues. Are you interested in starting a database where people could put in information about their judges? Yes, that is our main initiative in the fall of 2022. We are creating a centralized clerkships reporting database whereby law clerks, current and former, will create an account with us anonymously. 
using their email address. So we'll verify that they are law clerk alums of the school. They will write a report, good, bad, or medium. We wanna hear everything. And then if your law school is participating, all of the law students, including judicial interns and externs, will get access to that information. They can read all the reports, not just their alumni's reports, but reports from all the other law school alumni. It's the best way to centralize and democratize the information so all law students and young attorneys have as much information as possible about judges when they're applying. Did you talk to anyone about your judge when you were applying? And if so, what was your, what did you hear? So I talked to people in DC. Um, I was doing a semester internship at the Justice Department during the time I was applying and interviewing for clerkships. I spoke with AUSAs and other folks in DC who told me what a nice man the judge was. I talked to some professors from my law school who you know, helped me get interviews and made calls on my behalf. I remember so many professors and administrators telling me in those couple of years between when I interviewed for and started the clerkship what a nice man the then judge was. I later found out the judge had a history of misconduct and that several law school officials were aware of this and did not warn me at the time I applied. Um, but I, you know, I'm working productively with my law school now and I know that my story is not rare and there are other instances where law schools have information that they are not sharing with their students. But I think of the Legal Accountability Project and specifically our clerkships database is what I wish I had when I was a law student applying for clerkships. That is how the idea came about, to create the database and to centralize it. So we're not, we initially thought perhaps we should do internal databases at each law school. And then we realized we're not centralizing the information. We are not combating those silo effects. We wanna centralize it. So as many law students have po- as much information as possible about these judges. I was curious too. I mean, it would certainly be good to have this information, but is a federal clerkship so important to people's careers that you can't, it's like, you know, this advice will choose a judge who's a good fit for you. Well, what does that even mean? And do, do you really have that many choices? Definitely. There are lots of judges, lots of clerkships. And I mean, there's there are state court clerkships, there are Article One federal clerkships, there are a wide variety of clerkships to apply to. And I think, you know, our database focuses on misconduct and avoiding misbehaving judges, but it also asks other things that students want to know before they apply. Does this judge give me a lot of writing experience? How does he or she provide feedback on my work? Do I get a lot of courtroom experience? There are lots of things that contribute to good fit between judges and clerks, and I think they're all enormously important. And when we say the only way to learn information about judges before you apply is by reaching out to current and former clerks, that puts the enormous like burden on clerks to be sharing this information and fielding these inquiries. And every clerkship experience is different. Every interaction between judge and clerk is different. Um, there's just so much more information we need to know when we're applying for clerkships. It shouldn't be such a black box. It's so different from even other jobs in the legal profession. And when law schools say, well, I tell students to do their research. Well, when you're applying for a career as like a prosecutor or a PD, the research you're doing is like, how, what's the caseload like? Like, when do I transition from misdemeanors to felonies? Not, is my boss gonna harass me? So I think that's just such terrible advice. Yeah. Yeah. So have you, I I feel like there are still some federal judges that maybe have never hired a female clerk. 
Do you think that's accurate? I do. I do. And the leaked D.C. Circuit survey indicated there are a couple of judges who are really not hiring female clerks, non-white clerks. Yes. One of the things we need to do is a hiring survey. Um, the JA would mandate this. This has been floated before to the judiciary. And the judges who don't want to report their hiring data, that should be a red flag. Why don't you want to report that information? Well, that's what I was going to ask you about is if the JAA is passed. Because as I said, I mean, we all know that there's still judges that don't hire women clerks. So if the JAA is passed, would that put an end to that? Because it, it seems a little odd it's still that way today, but we know that it is of some. So the JA would impose some data collection requirements. And I think that quantifying the scope of the problem and quantifying each of these issues is the first step toward crafting more effective solutions. But the JA would just require judges to report their hiring data. It wouldn't punish them for not hiring women, not hiring non-white clerks. I think that's something that is going to need further legislation. I think there should be a additional judicial accountability legislation to address that. So, but it would have Title VII applying to the federal clerkships if it passes, right? Yes, absolutely. But the onus would still be on the mistreated employee to sue to establish that their rights have been violated. Yeah. I, well, have you ever heard stories about if you have a judge that only hires, hires male clerks, is maybe another judge might say something to them. Like, do you really want to be this person? I assume if it's a man who does it, I, uh, it might come, they might take it better if another man approached them. Um, but I don't know, maybe just women. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of these issues where diverse, increasing diversity on the bench would help. If you had more female judges, if you had more non-white judges putting pressure on each other and saying, this is what the bench looks like, and our chambers should in turn reflect the diversity of the bench. But I, th I think we should put more onus on judges to have these difficult conversations, but there also need to be more rules and a commitment to enforcing the rules. And I was curious, too, because with employers, a lot of times they will do an audit to check on things like pay, which wouldn't be an issue with the federal judges. But it could be an issue if they did an audit to look at gender and race um, and sexual orientation and hiring. Do you know if anyone has ever done that? As far as I know, there has been resistance to any sort of internal surveying. And the issue is that even when these surveys are conducted, they are for internal purposes only. They are not intended to be released publicly. And that's why one of the initiatives of workplace culture assessment that my nonprofit is going to be conducting is so important. We're committing to publicly release the results. It's not great if you are conducting surveys and not releasing the results. I think that's also a red flag that there are things that they're finding that are not great that should be reported. Um, but there's definitely also been resistance to having any sort of like internal inspector general come in and do surveying. I mean, the JA would also create a special counsel that would help with some investigations. But we just need more sunlight on the processes in the federal judiciary. And on that note, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals, Asked and Answered.